0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org, or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. open in front of you there. The connection with Isaiah 60 being this uh, majestic, albeit um, you know, couched in quite Old Testament terms, image of um, the future glory, really of. Uh, God's salvation that was coming to His people. Uh, Now, I just have a few introductory sort of comments and things for us to think about before we pray and get into the text. Uh, When we read about, uh, you know, from time to time we read about God's glory... Um, in the Scriptures. In fact, it's a pretty common theme and we we talk then about living kind of in the grip of God's glory or in view of His glory, uh, one way or another. Um, I think what we do when we come across that, uh, is this fair to say, we do this quick self-evaluation because we know that we're supposed to live in the grip of God's glory and not sort of in the grip of our own um, self-obsessed with our own glory. I think it runs something like this, we ask ourselves, do I deep down Uh, believe that I am the all-glorious, spectacular, centre of the universe, worthy of all praise, commander of my destiny, Lord of my life, no. (laughs) Well, unless we're seriously, pathologically in trouble, um, I hope, we say to ourselves, no. In fact, I'm I'm, I'm acutely aware of my own flaws. Uh, I know that I'm not, uh, well, nearly the man that I wish that I was, the woman that you wish you were, I cringe at my own dysfunctions. I, I admit that I'm a sinner. That's part of the gospel itself, isn't it? It's not my glory. Um, and what does that mean? Well, we go, well, probably I'm okay then in terms of living in the grip of God's glory because I admit he's the glorious one and I'm not the glorious one. And yet, can I really say wholeheartedly, body and soul, you know, heart and mind and soul and strength, that my life, I live to the glory of God alone, wholly and solely uh, devoted to and and resolute, solely Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Uh, Our passage today in One Thessalon... Two Thessalonians, I beg your pardon, it seems to hold uh, quite tightly together, this language of glory with God's capacity to do things, extraordinary things, powerful things and I wonder if there is something for us to take from that in terms of how we think about our own glory, not that we think that we're spotless, amazing, worthy of all praise or anything like that but is there a lesson here for us, just in our own self-evaluation, about how we think about ourselves, how impressive we are, the kind of people we hold ourselves up to be, do you see? And I just just to give us a little taste of this, um, and I want to tread gently here, but um, let, let me run through a couple of examples. For some of us here, um, you know, we've spent this year being told by the powers that be, no, you can't do certain things that you... Used to be able to do, feel you should be able to do. For instance, you, this year you can't go and visit your grandkids like you ordinarily would. And that's been a painful thing, um, partly because of the, the, the loss of the experience, partly just missing out on the affection that you rightly have um, for your grandchildren. But is there also a little sense in there, and I'm not sure if this is healthy or not that, well, I'm the kind of grandparent who gets involved in my grandkids' lives, it's who I am, do you see? Is there a a self-identity, a glory that we hold ourselves to, it's who I am, I have the freedom and the means to go and visit and so that's what I do, do you see? I do that, to be there, to love them, now, uh, for others of us, maybe it's, it's touched us in different ways. For others of us, perhaps, uh, have, you had to, have you had to make the switch to online shopping this year? To online shopping, that sounds just quite a small deal for many of us, I think. In fact, we quite like online shopping. A- and it seems small and perhaps your children, your adult children were telling you, it is a small thing, it's no big deal. What's the big deal about signing up for online um, shopping? It's easier for you, mum or dad. But we actually feel a bit robbed perhaps because it was never just about doing the shopping and its ease, for me it was an emblem that I could do it on my own, I could take care of myself because that's who I am. On a different front altogether, um, some of us, I'm quite conscious, are in the thick of exams or staring down the barrel of them and uh, don't misunderstand me, I want you to do gloriously well uh, in those exams when the time comes, in a few days or within the next couple of weeks Um, and I certainly want you to feel confident and all of that sort of stuff but there's this moment, isn't there, have you faced it before? There's this moment just before you're allowed to start writing, pen in hand, blank page before you, seconds ticking towards start time as you watch the clock, a moment where effectively the world is asking you, what have you got? Have you got what it takes? You're going to be judged on what flows out of that pen onto that page in the next 90, 120, 180 minutes. Have you got it? Is that who you are? And perhaps this year, especially with all of its interruptions, maybe we feel I don't know if I've got what it takes. What about others of us working from home, myself included, I'd like to think that I'm the kind of guy who can just effortlessly, you know, breeze my way from working from the office to working from home, make that transition effortlessly without any friction, without any difficulty, I can take it all in my stride, just the kind of man that I am, who can navigate a small thing like that, can I? Have I done so well at that? Friends, I wonder if in a thousand small ways, this year's restrictions and rules and impositions have actually eroded my sense of my own glory and that may not altogether be a bad thing. I'm a little disappointed, not just with the rules out there imposed on me but with how I've measured up and how I've responded, how I've coped. We feel less powerful, I think, we feel more limited, We feel less free and less positive about how we've handled everything, we feel a little bit more hollow and fragile and perhaps a little less hopeful. I wonder, does any of that resonate with us, friends? Now, today, today's passage, two Thessalonians, long introduction, I know, I think has some spectacularly good news for us, as it calls us to live and especially to pray in the grip of God's glory and not just in the grip of my own about we pray and could I ask one of the elders, my hunch is, maybe it's just because I'm standing up here, I don't reckon we need those heating the room anymore. You reckon I'm right? Yeah, I'm seeing nods. Could I ask one of the elders to switch those off, lest we all flake? Thanks, Luke. Uh, I'll lead us all in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, our glorious God... Uh, it's been said that you whisper to us in our pleasures and speak in our conscience but shout in our pains and Father, we don't want to overstate our pains because we recognise how, how good, in a sense, we have it here compared to the rest of the world but some things this year have been painful and Father, as we turn to your Word, we want to hear our God, if necessary, shout to us, words that we need to hear. And perhaps words that we're uniquely able and ready to hear this morning, that we've been a little deaf to in the past. So God, would you speak in your Word to us, may your Spirit bow our hearts and bend our wills, may your Spirit fill our hearts and firm our wills, so that Christ may be glorified in us, that we may live in the grip of glory, that we may pray in the grip of glory that we may be in the grip of glory, even in the painful areas of life and we ask it all in Jesus' name, Amen. So, as I said, we're continuing this series, exploring Paul's prayer life through his letters to the churches in many of the New Testament letters, as it's uh, uh, captured here for us. Uh, Last week, we had a look at 1 Thessalonians, do you remember we were here last week? You may not have been. Uh, Last week, 1 Thessalonians, uh, the church in Thessalonica, that church that Paul, do you remember how, what a brief time he spent there, just three Sabbaths, right, just three, uh, three weeks or thereabout, preaching the Gospel of Jesus to them, uh, before being hounded out of town and then being in fear for their faith and he prayed for their perseverance because he wanted to see them continue but there was uh, quite a deal of anxiety in him and finally he heard that they were flourishing do you remember, not only in faith but in love, faith had really taken root amongst them and it was expressed in their love for one another and we see more of that uh, this morning in 2 Thessalonians. But 2 Th- Thessalonians today, so to the same church, a few years later and as I make it out, the grip that God's glory has on Paul's prayer life, it isn't just good for his prayers, it is good for that, but it seems to me that it's good for his soul, it's good for his outlook, in the world, it's good for him as a man in the world to be living in the grip of God's glory and I hope that's what we see today. Will Paul's perspective not only move us to better prayer as children of God but to become better people to the glory of Jesus? I think it will. On the first evidence of that or lesson that the mark of a life lived gripped by the glory of God. Firstly, uh, it sounds rather plain, we've probably heard it a thousand times, can we notice that Paul, as delighted as he is in these Thessalonians, he doesn't praise them, he doesn't glory in them, although humanly they were the product of his missionary work, no, he firstly, he looks to God for growth, That's the first one, looking to God for growth. He credits how they're going to God. He gives glory where it's due, which is to God and not to them. So, let's read together. It's probably a point that we're very familiar with, but that's okay. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, picking it up from verse 1, Paul, Silas and Timothy, actually, it's not just Paul, is it? Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the letter opening, we're going to pick it up from verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. I'm going to ask you a, I don't know, maybe a bit of an awkward question, do you ever get jealous of other churches? Maybe from time to time you go and visit another church with a friend uh, or whatever or um, uh, you see what they're doing, maybe for Christmas you've seen their signs or whatever, do you ever get jealous of other churches? It's a bit of a trap for ministers, um, by the way, as well. I need to watch my own heart there. But do, for all of us, does jealousy ever kind of creep in around the edges when you hear either what they're doing or they're, the growth that they're experiencing? That's lovely to hear those stories, isn't it? I talked to one of the um, one of the staff at at um, Focus, the Fellowship of Overseas Christian University students. I asked uh, how was how was the week, and he said, um, "Oh, gee." Uh, Oh no, we had a convert this week. It was yeah, it was a good week. I said, Whoa, oh, that's that's great. He said, Yeah, we had two the week before. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Do you ever get jealous of other churches, folks? Do we ever get jealous of the early church when we read these letters that make up part of our Bible, like the church in Thessalonica? Uh, here's why. I see, I reckon we find ourselves a bit jealous of a church like the Thessalonian Church, because Look at how well they're doing, you see? And we start to imagine what it must have been like, imagine if we were part of their church instead of part of our church, how wonderful it must have been, I bet they saw each other all the time, delighted to see one another, it talks, I bet they had like midweek Bible studies every night of the week. It says doesn't it, that they were, their faith is growing more and more, they probably did church events that were so fun, all the non-Christians wanted to come along, didn't they? It was probably spectacular. They probably did ministries of mercy, they probably started the Hobart City Mission, the Thessalonian City Mission, probably did all that sort of stuff. They were really living it, weren't they? Growing and loving and dusty, you can see their faces, dusty and earthy Christian faces there, wonderful, oh to be them. But friends, I think we get that kind of romantic idea because we hear the glowing report that's there at the start of verse 3, and uh, we're daydreaming by the time we get to the end of verse 4, and so we're not even listening anymore. I wonder if you're a bit like that and so we come up with this image of an idealised, non-existent church because what does verse 4 say, what was actual day-to-day, face-to-face existence uh, in the church on the ground in Thessalonica, verse 4, therefore among God's churches, we, Paul, Silas and Timothy, we boast about, what? About your perseverance and faith in all of the persecutions and trials that you are what that you are enduring <laughs> that's quite a different picture i'm not convinced that the thessalonian church would have been the envy of anyone who actually knew what was going on there on the ground in thessalonica but for the fact that god is there growing their faith seeing them love one another, wouldn't you say? What I'm saying is, I reckon Thessalonian church life, to anyone in the know, was probably a bit disappointing because they were a church in a tough spot, they were a church in a tough season, they were a church doing it tougher than most but Paul refuses to judge them by how worthy they look how much they seem to have what it takes, how wonderful they are, whether they can prove themselves. No, Paul says, I see the work of God in you, broken and frail and beaten you, fumbling and bubbling you, I see the work of God in you. So we are, verse 3, always, always thanking God for you. I think Paul is in the grip of a different view of glory, isn't he? And so secondly, and I think this helps us feel the difference even more, do we pray not just like God is the one who is the truly glorious one but pray like we long for Christ's coming glory as well? Secondly, do we pray uh, with a longing for Christ's coming glory? In, in fact, this, uh, this may sound very weird to us but the perseverance of true believers under persecution, in trials that they are enduring. It seems to me, that affirms Paul, actually, in his conviction that God knows what he's doing. Strange, isn't it? Uh, Let's keep reading, not that the church is kicking goals and running all the right programs and starting the Thessalonian city mission or whatever, but the church that has taken a kick in the guts, with faith and love, by the power of God, verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the Kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of Of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people, to be marvelled at among all those who have believed, this includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Do we long for Christ's coming glory? It's quite a picture there, isn't it? Do we long for that? for Christ's coming glory? I think we do at times. I think we really do it sometimes, actually, in times of grief, in times of sadness, when we're really feeling the pressure, when the bottom drops out of life. I think we do, actually, long for the return of Jesus. When we see gross injustice in the world and we feel we can't do anything about it, yet we long for the coming of Jesus then, we long for His justice. What about the rest of the time? What about in ordinary church life? Um, Don Carson asks the very helpful question like this, he says, to put the matter bluntly, can Biblical spirituality long survive where Christians are not oriented to the world to come? Right, can Biblical spirituality long survive where Christians are not oriented to the world to come? And then he gets it even more honed, can we expect to pray aright? Unless we are oriented to the world to come. I think about myself, am I gripped by the revelation of Jesus, how does it put it, in blazing fire from heaven? Uh, Do I long for the relief of that day? Do you long for the relief of that day? Do I want and do I wish for the world to encounter Jesus in His glory as Saviour and as Judge? Do I long for Christ's coming glory. I confess, I've been thinking about it, I think there are three things that tend to get in the way and I wonder if you're the same. Let's, uh, let's talk about things that get in the way of us longing for the glory of Jesus when, he's, uh, when He returns um, in blazing fire as Saviour and Judge. Three things, number one, I kind, of, um, I, th- it, I kind of, I think we enjoy the delusion that my present glory is somehow more pressing, uh, more urgent, my life and my pursuits and the things that I'm busy with, more pressing, a higher priority, which is blasphemously short-sighted and silly, isn't it? When you have to say it out loud, but we, do, we get caught up in ourselves. And what I've got on and the things I've got to get done and there's so little of the year left, is that one factor that mutes my longing. For the coming of Christ in glory. Number two, is my longing somewhat curbed? Partly because I find the negative uh, picture there just too unpalatable. The blazing fire and the rest. Uh, you know the verses there. Verse six say, God is just, He'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Uh, halfway through verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels, He will punish, verse 8, those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be punished, verse 9, with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And you see, I, I suspect we, we'd rather not contemplate it. Why? Well, because of loved ones, that's Why? Because of uh, unbelief, because we don't know where they stand or we kind of do know where they stand and that's a terrifying thought in itself. But maybe because just generally we don't want to sound like judgmental bigots. On that, can I just point out, uh, what's Paul doing here I don't believe that Paul's agenda with this paragraph, uh, weigh it for me in your own interpretation, I don't think that he is trying to stoke the flames of some vindictive sentiment among the Thessalonian church, is he? I don't think that's what he can be up to in this paragraph. Remember, he's speaking to a church that longs, verse 7, for relief, that suffers according to verse 5, where trials and persecution, we read that before, verse 4, trouble, verse 7, Where those things are sapping, constraining, draining, clouding, eroding the assurance of these dear Christians in their day-to-day life. Isn't that what Paul's trying to address? Uh, Perhaps the clouds have rolled in and they're beginning to ask themselves about life and about church and about their Christianity as they look around in the world, what's the point? This is hard, why am I bothering? And Paul, do you see, he pleads with them, he's he's saying, let me peel back the clouds for you. Because one day, Jesus will peel back the clouds, when He returns. Can't you see it coming? And the pain and the turmoil and the darkness that you are living under right now, Jesus will take them all and He will push them out of His presence. And you'll be with Him, and you'll see Him, and you'll marvel at Him. Do we, do I, in a sense, rob ourselves of relief, of quiet confidence, of a robust assurance? Simply because we won't let ourselves see the coming of Jesus as a sure and as a glorious reality that's really coming. Number three, very quickly, a third uh, uh, thing that we silence uh, longing for his coming glory. I think we'd rather, um, I think sometimes we do it because we'd rather keep the peace among believers. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, um, sometimes when you talk about the coming of Jesus, you end up in a bit of biffo with other Christians, don't you? Hopefully, not physically, that would be disastrous. But you know what I mean. Uh, So, uh, Don Carson, uh, again, he he reads Paul's words here, Paul's words, and he, he notices this trend among our churches. He says this, he says here, so in Paul, here's a real sense of expectancy that is increasingly lacking in many evangelical circles in the West. Not many years ago, we fought over eschatology, over what we thought would take place at the end. Many Christians were willing to divide over the finest details of their speculative schemes. Today, few of us are willing to fight over such niceties, there has been a commendable gain in tolerance. But, we've lost something as well. Succumbing to the overreaction to too much emphasis on eschatology, many of us have jettisoned, not only divisiveness over details, but interest in what is central. Will we, brothers and sisters, will we long for the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And finally, thirdly, will we live for a name more worthy than our own? Uh, So, uh, will we live for a name more worthy than our own? So, from verse 11, It's interesting actually, I've uh, I've said this as a sermon on prayer but the prayer actually only begins at verse 11, doesn't it? Uh, He's sort of reporting about prayer and he gives a bit of a framework, uh, verse 5 and following but it's the prayer actually only starts in verse 11. Uh, When I think of all the things that Paul could have prayed for the Thessalonians, if you got news of the Thessalonian church, how would you have prayed for them? God, will you give them relief? Look at what they're enduring. Is that what you would have have prayed? It would have been a good prayer. Uh, Lord, would you put their life back to normal? Or, for that matter, would you please put our lives back to normal? (laughs) Also a good prayer. Father, would you bring peace in Thessalonica? Friends, why does Paul pray this prayer? Verse 11, let's read. With this in mind, so with all this in mind, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I think, it's, um, I think it's easy to get jealous of other churches and their excellence, how well they're going, uh, or their programs, or their preacher, or their building, or their facilities, or whatever, because we get drawn into believing that that's where the glory is, right? that's what's glorious in our eyes about church. And I think we believe sincerely and with compassion that if, if God were to heal her or repair them, put their life back together or, or fix that, Then God would be glorified in the world. Uh, And I think it's also why we struggle when our own capacity and our freedom and our lightness and our health are threatened. We pray for relief and repair in those, because aren't those things glorious? When God heals someone, repairs someone, helps us to go well in life. But the thing is, in the wisdom of God, he chose to display His glory most clearly, where? At the cross. So, let me ask us, what is the glory that we long for in our lives? What is the glory that we would pray for the Thessalonians in their lives? Has the glory of, so, of Jesus so gripped us that we long for His glory To be evident in ourselves. I think that is a profoundly sobering thought and yet it's a beautiful one, isn't it? Uh, For Christ's glory was shown in the trouble and the suffering, Christ's glory was was shown when He seemed powerless, when He bore our pain, when relief didn't come running, and He died there on the cross for us. That was where the glory of Jesus was seen and and in His resurrection, of course. We pray this, says Paul, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's an extraordinary prayer for a suffering church, that that's what He chose to pray for them, may I close with just one reflection and, and this is particularly for you, if for anyone here who uh, who looks at the Christian life from the outside and, and uh, perhaps you find yourself asking, um, why? Uh, why would I choose the Christian life? Uh, why would I want to choose that? It, it's not exactly glorious, I mean, my Christian friends are nice, they're nice people, It's it, they're not exactly winning, sort of self-evidently, it's not wonderful, it's not glowing, it's not, um, they don't live longer necessarily, all the Christians I know aren't the healthiest, they're not even necessarily the holiest, they're certainly not the wealthiest or even necessarily the brightest. Why, why would I take on Christianity? Why would I turn to Jesus? And, and, and to that, if that's you, may I just gently challenge you, are you looking for a glory in your life at the present time? that you will not find in this world. Oh, it's coming, when Jesus returns, as Saviour. Glory is coming, spectacular and healing and mended and right, but what looks, what glory looks like right now, is the glory that you'll find in the Gospel of Jesus, the glory of love that increases more and more, even as life gets harder, that's glorious. Of good desires and deeds prompted by faith that actually come to fruition, even when the trouble is on. Of a soul that grows even as the clouds gather in on your life. I put it to you, look at the gospel. That is where glory is to be found in this world. Will we live and pray in the grip of our truly and generously glorious God? Let's pray. Our Father God in Heaven, uh, we have trained our eyes to see and to appreciate and to look and to long for versions of glory that are so much less than our spectacular Jesus, our Saviour and Lord, our self-giving Servant King. Father, would you retrain our eyes to appreciate the glory of Jesus, to marvel at Him, And to long for his return. Father, each of us carries our own load of of cares and concerns and even sin and regrets. Right where we are, may we glorify Jesus. May that strange and beautiful glory emanate out from us. May we learn to value and to seek and to celebrate that kind of glory more and more. May we pray for it for one another may we rejoice in it and give thanks to You when we see it, may we long for the relief of Christ's appearing with an urgency and and passion that has perhaps grown a little bit dim or blunted. Father God, one day Christ's return will tear back the clouds that we presently live under, so give us the eyes to see and to marvel and to rejoice and delight in Him, even now and we pray for Your glory and praise, in Jesus' name, Amen.